Good evening, and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty tonight, but I think we have it now. We would like to welcome our guest, Dr. Dale Archer. Dale, are you there, Dr. Archer? Yes, I'm here. Wonderful. I apologize for the delay. We had a little uh, glitch there with our opening tonight, but I'd like to properly introduce you to our show. We're very excited to have you tonight. Very good to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, As we mentioned this week, we are talking with Dr. Dale Archer. He is the New York Times bestselling author of his book, Better Than Normal, How What Makes You Different Can Make You Exceptional. It's a fresh perspective on labels and their use, such as ADHD, OCD, and others we're going to be talking about tonight. Dr. Archer is a board-certified psychiatrist and a New York Times bestselling author. He's had a private practice for over 20 years. He is now the medical director for psychiatric services at Lake Charles Memorial Hospital. He's a media veteran with over two decades of experience, and he's also the host of the Dr. Dale Archer. Show. He's appeared on most of the top national news uh, shows talking about various psychological issues related to current events. And Dr. Archer has also authored several articles, as well as the previous book, Chemical Imbalance Depression. And he also currently writes Taking Charge, an advice column that's now syndicated nationally in numerous magazines and newspapers. And tonight we are excited to be talking about his latest bestseller, Better Than Normal, How What Makes You Different Can Make You Exceptional. Welcome, Dr. Archer. Very nice to be here. We are glad to have you. And Rebecca is also on the line, my co-host tonight. Rebecca, welcome. Hi, Diane. Hi, Dr. Archer. Thank you for being here. You know, it was really funny when uh, I called in initially and I pressed to go to the host queue, it uh, put me on somewhere where I was hearing a dog barking repeatedly (laughs) over and over and over. And I'm going, I wonder if I have the right radio show. Maybe I need to recall. <laughs> you know, there's nothing normal about our show this evening, so we're right on topic, I believe. <laughs> I'm not a pet psychiatrist. I don't wear a <laughs> The dog whisper comes to the right yes, spoken show. Right. <laughs> well, we have a lot of those. Uh, well, before we get started, uh, Dr. Archer, we'd like to begin, if you could, by telling us a little bit about your background and, and basically what led you to write better than normal. Just tell us um, how you how this book came about. Well, I'm a psychiatrist, and I started practicing a, a long, long time ago. I hate to date myself, but uh, 1987, actually. And, um, you know, back in the 80s, uh, it it was really, really a very um, stigmatized area of medicine. And uh, no one wanted to go see a psychiatrist to get medication because they thought that only weak people needed to see a shrink and they should go and build themselves up for the bridge stops. And everyone said, no, you don't need to do that. Just get over it. Be tough. Be strong. Uh And there was a tremendous stigma about anyone walking in who really needed help. And, of course, 80s was a, probably the most profound decade in terms of outlining and understanding what a chemical imbalance of the brain is and how this contributes to various psychiatric conditions, depression, schizophrenia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and so on. So I started thinking then that, boy, if we could just destigmatize 
normalize this and get people to come in and get help, we really could just about wipe out mental illness. Because at that point, we were thinking that it was all chemical imbalance related. If we could get people on the right medication, we could cure them. So I wasn't the only one that felt that way, and a lot of other people around America did too, a lot of professionals, and, and we really started pushing. And I wrote my first book, Chemical Imbalance Depression, talking about just that, that depression can be caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. It's not your fault. Go in and get help because you're not weak. It's a medical condition, and you need to acknowledge it as such in order to get treated. Well, initially things went well, and the people that really needed help were coming in and getting help. But the pendulum started swinging, and it kept swinging. It kept going further and further and further. And eventually, we get to the point today, and over the last 10-plus years, where psychiatry has gone from being stigmatized to glamorized. And everyone has a chemical imbalance, and everyone needs a medication for their anxiety or if they get a little depressed or if they need to sleep or whatever. They need to be treated. So what we've done is we took the conditions that – no one wanted to be caught dead going to see a psychiatrist with these problems, so therefore we only got the, the most severe of the most severe. We were getting really, really sick people that did, in fact, need to be treated, and many of them didn't need medication. And now anyone can walk in off the street and tell their family doctor, I'm a little depressed. Oh, well, here's a pill. That'll make you better. I'm a little anxious. Well, here's a pill. And I realized, you know, all of those things that I had stood for back in the 80s, it had been carried vastly too far to the fact that now we are over-diagnosing, over-medicating, over-treating the vast majority of people who walk into any doctor's office or any therapist's office, they need to be fixed because they're not normal. So that's what prompted me to write the book. Well, well I really... Oh, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. I was. Um, I like the way um, in the setup of the book where you explain how... Um, your history and how the drug trials evolved and how eventually um, because of the the impact that Big Pharma has on drug testing and the um, way that um, even today that trials are still funded by the pharmaceutical companies, that you've come around to the position that while medication is necessary, it almost needs to be the last piece of the puzzle because um, you, you and others have come to see that other types of therapy are, are also effective in helping um, the, the chemical imbalances in the brain. Well, and, um, I just think that's that, an interesting overview. Yeah, that's a, you know, it's, it's a, a interesting um, dynamic. And I think mm-hmm. the thing is, is that I, I don't, there's plenty of blame to go around. So, I mean, you mentioned that the drug companies absolutely there to blame. No, I think it's, it's interesting, though, and not to blame them at all. It's just the way it evolved. And well, the fact I think that, that there, yeah, no, I think that there is blame. I mean, I think that the psychiatrists who, you know, for years were considered not real doctors, so we've embraced the chemical balance model and want to use medications to, and the, the big pharma is part of the problem, and then. Certainly the, the public at large, I mean, their, their friends, you know, had a little anxiety and took a bill. Oh, I feel great. You have to go get some. And this really, really helped me out. And so it's, it's really a cultural phenomenon across the board. Uh-huh. Um, and, but certainly now we need to stop and take a deep breath and say, wow, okay, 
You know, we are over-medicating people. And, yeah, it, as I put out in the book, mental illness occurs along a continuum. It's not an on-off switch. On, you're depressed, off, you're normal. On, you're bipolar, off, you're normal. These things occur along a continuum from 1 to 10. And if you're the 9, the 10, the 10-plus range of a bipolar or an OCD or an ADHD, yeah, you need treatment and you might need medicine. But we're medicating people who have a 5 or a 6 or a 7 or 8. And so it needs to be the last piece of the puzzle, absolutely. And first of all, I'm going to back up even further and say many people are going in for treatment because they think they're not normal. They don't need treatment at all. They don't even need therapy. You know, they just need to embrace the fact that these are a couple of their quirks Instead of trying to fix it and become like everyone else and fit into this normal box, they need to embrace the fact that, okay, this is who I am. And then the next step is if you're really having problems with how you're living your life, then, yeah, go in to get therapy. And then the final step, if all that doesn't work, then maybe medication. But unfortunately, medication has become, in today's world, the first option when it should be the last option. You know, I I thought of something when you were saying that about, you know, maybe you need to embrace who you are. And I, I thought about um, a quote that I see often posted on some of the blogs and so forth about uh, Dr. Seuss, something Dr. Seuss said, why try to fit in when you were born to stand out? Oh, that's a good one. And that, that really um, seems to apply here, and I know that we would agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know. As we as we talk about the way your book is structured, which I think is great, it's it's a really really easy format to follow and to kind of really get into the depth of it. And that is centered around the eight common traits that are often viewed as part of a disability. And of course, we agree that many of these are the very traits that also can make someone exceptional, as we um, highlight. And one of our um, our collaborators. Dr. Temple Grandin, certainly it is her autism that makes her exceptional, her difference. And uh, if you could, for our audience, share a few of those examples of people you talk about, of some of the the characteristics. Well, um, let's go over the the, uh, the traits just real quick, and, and I want to explain that a, a little bit, because what what I did was I took eight of the most common psychiatric diagnoses. And so the diagnoses, of course, everyone knows that would be ADHD and schizophrenia and bipolar, generalized anxiety, antisocial ADHD. Um, And then I said, okay, let's look at these along a continuum and, and reframe them in terms of someone who doesn't have severe symptomatology, what would this trait be called if we wanted to look at it in terms of a positive instead of a negative. So ADHD would be adventure, and then the antisocial—not antisocial. I'm sorry, that's that's <laughs> the social anxiety disorder. Social anxiety disorder. Antisocial. Was doing a talk on actually mass murderers yesterday, so I got oh dear, a little, a little <laughs> off track. <laughs> There's nothing good about that. Different uh, program. So a different program, right? Social anxiety disorder is shy. General anxiety, generalized anxiety is hyper alert. Bipolar, of course, would be high energy. So each of these had a positive side to it. And then I went in and started looking at. We actually did a, a survey, um, large survey of all the 
patients in our psychiatric practice, which was six psychiatrists and ten therapists, and we did a survey of all of the different people who um, have these diagnoses, and we, we ranked them along the severity scale, and then we looked at, okay, what type of positive uh, aspects does this individual have? And then we did interviews with them. And so what we found is that there are positives with each and every one of these. And again, it occurs along the continuum. So if you've got generalized anxiety along the continuum, we go from one to ten. One, you have no anxiety whatsoever. Ten, or even ten plus, you have severe anxiety that affects every aspect of your life and literally can't live a normal life. But if you're in the five and the six and the seven and the eight, what what could be good about that? Well, I mean, these people are very alert to detail. They're very good with uh, risk management type situations. They make a good accountant because they're hyper alert and they're always you know, fearing for the worst and looking for it and then correcting that. So there are good aspects of these. We just never talk about them. That's the problem. It's considered a negative and it's bad, and if you have anxiety, that's a bad thing. Well, you know what? There are a lot of good things that go on that continuum. In terms of uh, career and career planning, because as a teacher, I know that we tend to push our children into um, – career paths earlier, younger and younger. But did you find in your survey that these um, eight characteristics or traits were also present in childhood as well as um, the adulthood? Did you did your survey include children and teens, or was it primarily adults? It was primarily adults. And, you know, it becomes problematic trying to, to do this with, kids and adolescents, it would be a worthwhile mm-hmm. deal. And, and my my new book, which I'm working on now, is going to be focusing on ADHD, and I'm going to be looking at that across the spectrum from kids all the way to adults. But certainly, if you look at the demographic data for psychiatric diagnoses, then we know that kids and adolescents and teens uh, can have each and every one of these. Um, you know, if you look at the more mm-hmm. serious conditions, schizophrenia or bipolar, that tends to be more common once you get into late teens and into your 20s. So you're mm-hmm. not going to see that as much as kids. But certainly the big one in childhood and the one that's most concerning and the one that I think is more overdiagnosed than perhaps any of the others and perhaps maybe than all of the others put together is ADHD. I mean, ADHD is just an epidemic of overdiagnostic uh situation right now that uh, is really has me concerned. Right. As I was thinking about the common traits and how they do predispose people to strengths and and careers, I was just thinking of if, if parents are recognizing any of these in their children, perhaps looking at what you have to say, they can see that if this isn't a debilitating issue, then perhaps it's something that could be nurtured and developed to help the child um, embrace their own personality and their own behavioral traits and their own I, their, yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, and, and certainly there are, uh, as you know, the book does focus on accepting yourself for who you are, not trying to conform to what you perceive as being normal. And I think that's become a big part of the problem is that everyone today wants to be normal. They don't want to be weird. They don't want to be different. You know, back in the old days, we accepted that some folks were just quirky. 
And we didn't say they needed to be on a medication to try to change their quirkiness. They're just a little different. They were a little merged to their own drummer. They were a little out there. But now when we see someone like that or if we ourselves perceive that we're a little different, then we want to immediately get treated so that we're not different. And that embracing of your uniqueness, I mean, literally, if you want to be great, you've got to embrace embrace your uniqueness. You're not going to become great by becoming normal, which is average. And so that's what we need to educate adults on. And then by, I think, the trickle-down effect, if we can convince adults that, okay, hey, this is okay, then they're going to look at their kids and say, oh, well, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, he's, a, he's a little obsessive, but not a big deal. Or, yeah, he's a little distractible, a little little too rambunctious, but I'm, I'm not going to go slap him on Ritalin. Uh, right. So I, I think that it, it 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 starts with adults. We've got to start accepting ourselves for who we are before we can then turn to our children and say, okay, we want to embrace and we want you to embrace who you are. Modeling, it always works. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent point. And, you know, while we're on the subject of ADHD, as you mentioned, and I think there's a lot of people who would agree with you that it um, maybe even combined one of the most overdiagnosed and um, certainly the the heart of some of the most troubling issues come under that diagnostic label. Um, I know we have covered it extensively, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with with our work. Um, before our book, Bright Not Broken, we wrote a book called The ADHD Autism Connection. And oh, we, we did quite a lot of um, research into the controversy and, you know, why is this diagnosis so unhelpful? Why is it so damaging in some ways when it's connected to things of behavioral issues like oppositional defiant disorder and now I understand um, the the new uh, diagnostic label, and uh, help me with this, Rebecca, if I forget it, um, the the disruptive mood uh, yeah. dysregulation. The, um, yeah. yeah, disruptive mood dysregulation. Yes. Which, am I correct, Dr. Archer, that yes. that is yet another category to add more medications, to medicate these behaviors even more? Am I right about that? Well, yeah, and and if you look at the history of the diagnostic manual, which uh, you know first came out back in the fifties, there were about a hundred psychiatric diagnoses, and with the, mm-hmm. we're not sure exactly how many diagnoses are going to be in DSM five yet, but in DSM four TR there were three hundred and fifty. So we added two hundred and fifty psychiatric diagnoses, basically pathologized a whole you know, another millions of people, and. That just is more excuse to to treat and to medicate. So I, I totally agree. We should be getting fewer and fewer diagnoses instead of more and more. But unfortunately, and, and many of us spoke out with the complaining about the DSM five and the direction it was headed. Um, so it just becomes self perpetuating. Uh, unfortunately, that uh, you know you have this manual and it's quote unquote a scientific way of being able to diagnosed psychiatric condition. All it is is a checklist, essentially. If you have five of eight of these symptoms, you're depressed. If you have four of eight, you're not. So my argument would be, look, you know, if you would say that we're going to have 15 symptoms 
and we're going to rank your depression or we're going to rank your OCD or your ADHD along the scale to see how bad you really have it. And if you're way out there at the far end, then we're going to consider medication for you, but that's not the way it works. It's on-off. It's, it's still in an on-off type of mode. And unfortunately, I don't see it really making uh, a big difference in terms of trying to get this pendulum to start swinging back in the other direction. Right. So you either have it or you don't. And depending upon, um, rather than looking at it in terms of a more dimensional approach of how 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 much does this impact your functioning, this is an either-or, on-off, black-and-white type of approach to mental diagnoses. And, um, right, which is good since the first DSM, DSM-1. Right, right, exactly. I mean, that, that, that's what started it. And then they all they've done is add diagnoses every single uh, edition. Um, we went from DSM-1, and um, we're about to have DSM-5. And so um, it's uh, – and there's no end in sight. And, and unfortunately, you know, I mean, I, I, we have to we have to also put – put blame on the on the patients, on the individuals who are going in to get help because in today's immediate gratification world, people don't want to take the time to go to therapy. They want a pill. They want to feel better right now. Give me a pill. I want to feel better. I don't care about talking about any of this stuff. I don't care about getting in touch with who I am or what's going on in my life. I just want a pill to feel better. And we really are getting to the point where I want what I want right now. I don't want to wait. And I think that that all plays into it um, in addition to what we talked about, the psychiatrists and pharmaceutical companies and, and so on. And what I find so interesting is what you're describing is a desire to take away the very characteristic that you argue to make us better than normal how what makes us different can make us exceptional, but we're willing in the in the interest of feeling better immediately rather than having to struggle with this exceptional trait and find a way um, to make it work for us. It's easier to medicate it and, and to be normal because culturally that's what we're doing. Sure, sure. It, uh, on the surface, it, it sounds really good because... You think, okay, I've got this this trait. I'm I'm very obsessive and I'm a perfectionist and everything has to be perfect. And sometimes I take it too far and everything has to be completely and totally organized at all times. And you know that causes me some problems because I can't leave my house to go out and party with my friends unless it's totally spotless and clean before I walk out the door. So you, you think, wow, you know, really it would be nice if I didn't have this. And then you talk to your friend Sally, and she goes, oh, well, you know what, I had the same thing. And they gave me this medicine, um, and it's called an Afrenel, and, wow, it just totally worked, and um, I don't have those obsessions anymore. And you think, well, okay, well, that sounds great. That's what I'm going to do. Instead of, as you pointed out, taking the time to think, okay, this is who I am and this is what I have, how do I build my life around my trait? How can I make my life work around these traits instead of chopping this trait off, meditating it underground so that it's no longer an issue for me? Well, it may no longer be an issue, but you may have just chopped off your greatest strength, but you haven't taken the time to think about it 
or analyze it or put any effort into trying to make it work. Mm-hmm. So, I, it's again, we're a media gratification society, right? We're Papa Bill culture. And, uh, you know, Papa Bill, feel better. Why waste your time thinking or trying to figure things out and make things better? And you know, So it, it's 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 a concerning deal all, all, all the way across the board. Mm-hmm. Well, and we, as as we certainly um, concur with those thoughts, we also feel, and we've stated this along with Dr. Grandin, uh, Temple Grandin, that medication can be a helpful tool, as, a, as I know you have mentioned in your book, that there are times when it's necessary. And, um, you know, that's one of the upsides, and we're not totally anti-medication at all, but one of our gravest concerns is um, and this tendency to medicate younger and younger with more powerful medications in our preschoolers and um, the the trend of medicating young children is just something that to us is unacceptable and if you could weigh in on that I'm sure you've been asked that question before yeah I'll, I'll answer uh, I want to say two things here, and I'll, and I'll answer the second part of your question in a minute, but, you know, it really is a, a very difficult line sometimes to walk, and for me to say that, look, we're overdiagnosed, overmedicated, overtreated society, and we have to correct that, implies that you're anti-medication. And so I find that I often have to reiterate the fact that, no, I'm not anti-medication. Medication does have a role. It has a purpose. It needs to be a last resort, but I'm not opposed to it in those circumstances, but I think it's overutilized, vastly, vastly overutilized. And mm-hmm. walking that like you, because people want to label you. They want to label you, okay, yeah, he's a pro-medication guy or he's an anti-medication guy, kind of like a right. Democrat or Republican. You know, you're one of the other. Right. Liberal or conservative. <laughs> right. You can't be in between. Right. Because they can't they can't categorize you that way. <laughs> so I I do have <laughs> that uh, I deal with that a lot. Um, having to explain uh, that and in terms of medication for younger kids, it's it's deplorable. Um, when I was training, you know, we said that bipolar in, in kids was non-existent. I mean, we knew that schizophrenia average age of onset was nineteen, bipolar eighteen to twenty. And um, we wouldn't ever have thought about medicating a five-year-old for bipolar disorder because you can't sort out the symptomatology that you need in order to make that diagnosis from, you know, perhaps a hyperactive kid, perhaps a uh, oppositional defiant kid, a conduct disorder kid. You know, it can be all of these access to situations that are playing into this. And with a kid, you just don't have enough information, in my opinion, to make that diagnosis. But now, I mean, they're being medicated for bipolar. They're being medicated with very strong psychotropic drugs, drugs we use to treat hallucinations and delusions and paranoia. And they're using that to treat these young kids. Um, I mean, not to mention the ADHD, where roughly one, depending on the survey you look at, roughly one in ten kids in America carry an ADHD diagnosis when you look at it across the board from the parents to the teachers to the mental health system. And of those, approaching 50% are Medicaid. So that's a phenomenally large number of kids, 5 million kids 
carry the diagnosis of ADHD. And, you know, you got to ask yourself, wow, is one in ten kids really abnormal? One out of ten has, this, has a diagnosable psychiatric condition? And of those, almost 50% need meds? That's insanity. I mean, saying that it's, a, it's an epidemic that's consuming our population. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, with kids, I think that we always in the past, up until really the last few years, we did take an approach of therapy first and medication next. But even that now has fallen by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Well, we couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I think we're in sync with our thoughts along that line. Um, and I guess the question that we would have on the flip side of that is, what advice do you have for parents and professionals that are trying to help develop the strengths, maximize the potential, versus taking the shortcut out with the medication? Well, it starts with the individual. So my advice to parents would be you need to figure yourself out first and you need to figure out your strengths and your traits and what those are and how you've been able to make those work for you. Any type of weird quirks that you think were problematic, but then maybe now that you've grown and become older and are able to look back at it and say, well, you know what, that really worked out pretty well for me. So I always tell parents, well, you got to look at yourself first. I think it's very difficult to take this approach that I'm talking about and with a parent and say, okay, I'm going to start looking at my kids and I'm going to start analyzing them when they haven't even done it for themselves. And the simple sad fact is that most parents haven't done it for themselves. I mean, most people in this generation have not thought along these lines. And a lot of it is because... I mean, it's not out there. It's not talked about. It's not, it, it, you know, it's not part of the uh, of our culture today. So I would say start with yourself first, figure yourself out, and then that's going to give you some insight into your kids. Because a lot of times these things are genetic. These traits are genetic many times. And so you're able to look then and say, wow, you know what? Sally is just like me. We're both OCD. We're both professionists. And that worked out pretty well for me because I became an accountant. And, uh, you know, I deal with numbers all day and everything has to be perfect and add up to the penny. So I'm in the right job. And so I can help Sally focus that in the right direction for her. So that that's what I tell parents. I think that's excellent advice, don't you, mm-hmm. Rebecca? Oh, absolutely, because... We can't mentor anyone until we've attained a state of acceptance and comfort and recognition of of our own abilities and our own talents and and what we can bring to the table. And certainly for parents, it's hard to be objective about their children, especially when they suspect that the behavior or traits that they see um, are classified as mental disorders could be probably, and you have teachers and you have people in your ear, educators, um, doctors saying, oh, yeah, they fit the criteria that, you know. So for a parent to be able to take a hard-line stance, they have to have done the hard work themselves first. Agreed. Absolutely. 
Well, we um, have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and our interest has certainly piqued about your uh, future work. Can you tell us how far out your um, new book on ADHD will be? Uh, we are hoping to have that on uh, bookshelves in about a year. So we're looking toward that next March. And um, actually, uh, Better Than Normal will be coming out in paperback on March 13th of this year. So uh, for those who have waited and uh, wanted the price to come down, the opportunity will soon be at hand. Um but uh, the ADHD book is basically looking at the advantages of ADHD, and uh, it's going to look at everything from all of the uh, the various traits that go along with the, uh, the so-called diagnosis, and it's going to look at each and every one of them and say, okay, well, here's the negative and here's the positive of that. And then uh, it's going to have interviews with uh, people that have, admittedly struggle with it. Some are going to be famous. In fact, I just did an interview with Howie Mandel a couple of days ago, and um, he's had severe ADHD his whole life, and he said he's not being medicated for it, and that's literally what made him who he was. So um, we're going to be looking at uh, alternative school systems, some of which are, are being done right now, where they take kids and basically um, don't tell them that this is a problem, but have a, have a different type of structure and routine. And obviously for an ADHD kid, it's really hard to sit in the classroom for eight hours a day and focus for an hour at a time on a class. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of things that can be done with parents in order to help kids with homework and the school. And then these, these schools, I'm really excited about uh, uh, what's going on with some of them. And I think they're going to be a model for uh, public education going forward. Um, so it's it's fun. I'm really I'm really into it right now, and uh, can't uh, can't wait to get it out there. Well, it definitely sounds on target with um, with some popular trends that we hope continue, especially in education. Um, twice exceptional is a word that we use a lot, and we've um, been keeping up with in the educational system when we talk about focusing on the whole child, focusing on the gifts, bringing out the strengths, and less on boxing the deficit. Yeah, that's, uh, I, you know, I mean, I guess it's enough of us keep talking about it, and <laughs> maybe we'll make a difference. I mean, maybe I, I never will. thought I would see psychiatry uh, become glamorized, so uh, <laughs> I, I guess that uh, <laughs> we we were able to, to turn the stigma. We just did a little too good a job on that. So maybe now that we're uh, pushing back in the other direction, we'll uh, we'll stop this freight train running downhill and uh, and get it turned around. Well, that sounds wonderful. So. We hope so too. And tell us before we go, before we sign off here, please tell our listeners where they can find you, um, your website, your Facebook, your Twitter, your book. Um, they can find the book anywhere with bookstores. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, any of the online retailers uh, carry the book. So that's easy for me. Uh, my website is drdalearcher.com. That's D-R-D-A-L-E-A-R-C-H-E-R.com. Um, I do have a section there where I take questions from the uh, from the readers and and uh, give some advice, some free advice. So. I encourage people to check it out right in. I also uh, am a regular contributor 
uh, weekly to Psychology Today. And, again, you can find that online. Um, I'm on Facebook, Dr. Dale Archer, Twitter, Dr. Dale Archer. If you will join me there. And uh, and LinkedIn. So. <laughs> well, I think we have covered everything. I think you have. Any other questions, um, Rebecca? No, not at all. I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us. It's a fascinating, um, just an encouraging approach to hear someone who in the 80s gets into the unglamorous field of psychiatry and then sees that it's unleashed and realizes the need to tame it and um, and to help everyone become who they're supposed to be given the talents that we all have. So thank you, Dr. Archer. Well, thank you very much. And I want to say that uh, it, it was really interesting how uh, we were able to get together because you guys, I believe, approached me on Twitter, if I recall. Yes. And, uh, so, um, yeah, I uh, I really was not a big fan of social media two or three years ago when I was urged to get into it, and, and now it's amazing the doors and the connections that have sprung mm-hmm. forth uh, because of both Facebook and Twitter. So I, I was glad you guys were able to find me, and this was a very enjoyable uh, hour to spend. Wonderful. Well, and we, we too, have um, slowly been becoming adept at the Twitterverse, if that's what, if that's even the proper term. I'm not sure, but <laughs> we, <laughs> we attribute that to Marianne Russo of the Coffee Clatch. She has a wonderful network. We're just so thrilled to be part of it, and um, it, it does help us connect with uh, wonderful guests like yourself. And before we sign off, since we had kind of an erratic beginning, I wasn't able to thank our sponsor. We do have a sponsor of the show, Mayor Johnson, and with every child, there's a solution. You can explore a variety of educational solutions, and it's MayorJohnson.com, M-A-Y-E-R-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. Just wanted to make sure I got that in there. But we will look forward to speaking with you again um, when your new book comes out. We will certainly keep in touch with you, Dr. Archer. Thank you. That sounds fantastic, and you guys have a good night, and thanks for having me. Thank you. Good night. Good night.